Hello, you're listening to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I am your host, Emma Chasen, co-founder of Eminent Consulting and regular co-host of This is Cannabis on X-Ray. In celebration of International Women's Day, X-Ray is hosting Amplify Women, 12 hours of women, trans, and femme-focused programming to amplify the diverse voices and perspectives in our community. Between now and 6 p.m., you'll hear some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, and artists tell their stories to educate and inspire change. For the next 45 minutes, we will be talking all about women and cannabis. And with me in the studio to help inform that conversation is cannabis journalist and editor extraordinaire, your Lauren Yoshiko, a West Coast native with the ability to smell a legitimate cut of Girl Scout cookies and a literature degree from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Lauren was destined to be a cannabis culture critic. Since moving to Portland in 2013, she's experienced working for a dispensary, running one, managing harvest and sales at a state-licensed farm, all the while writing about the legal updates, plant science, consumer trends, and the emerging scene around social consumption. Her articles about the cultural and commercial happenings in the cannabis industry have appeared in Willamette Week, Forbes, Broccoli Magazine, High Times, and Rolling Stone, among others. Lauren, welcome to the show! Thank you! I'm really happy to be here and especially flattered today among all of these different people talking on x-ray today yes you were my first choice to bring on to the show today i am so excited to have you in the studio i don't know if we can pack it in in an hour there's a lot to talk about i know there's a lot of juicy stuff especially around women in cannabis and the media which um you are so well versed in so i cannot wait to get into the meat of the conversation but first i wanted you to just tell me a little bit about your experience in the industry thus far since you've done so much um where did you start how did you get there and how did you get to be such an influential journalist in the space you know i was so lucky uh, kind of a uh a lucky beneficiary of timing because I moved to Portland. I had, I just wanted to get a job doing whatever, but my goal was to write. And it was con- it was having a medical card that gave me the confidence to contact the Willamette Week. I saw that they were starting to publish strain reviews and they were kind of the only print, major print publication doing that at the time in 2013-14. And you had to have a card to go into Portland dispensaries. So I said, I have a card. Can I write if you guys need another strain reviewer? So for me, cannabis was a way to get a foot in the door writing. Mm. And those kind of went hand in hand. And as I'm secretly hiding this, these strain columns from my day job at a doing data entry at a corporation <laughs> i uh i even wrote under a pseudonym mary romano whoa i didn't know that yeah and it's it's not even the name makes no sense it was an inside joke for literally the two editors of portland like willamette week and mercury their playful competition mm. it was like a stab at Anne romano's column which was supposedly written actually by a, a man the the editor of the mercury so it was willamette week's way of poking a little bit at that rumor or fact and no no one else thought it was funny or got the joke it was really for those two men um (laughs) so i didn't really mind when i dropped it and it was exciting because it uh over time in that first couple years when we legalized weed it was like i don't have to do this anymore and and what is it saying to use a fake name i don't i don't want to be saying it's something to hide or Mm -hmm. something that isn't professional or that shouldn't be taken seriously just like whiskey 
columnists and beer writers so it felt really good to to write under my own name and I was able to do that because of the job opportunities that opened up in the industry and as you know being being early and being a female on the scene there were not as many of us I think yeah I think that socially even in 2010 2015 it still felt not as normal for women to be open regular cannabis consumers as guys mm-hmm. oh absolutely i mean I'd, like you said as short of a time ago as 2015 the industry was way more dominated by the male grower i mean that's who i saw a lot out and about in the space there was not really any type of collective of uh, women power within the cannabis industry. It's amazing to think of how far we've come since then. You think about the the retail scene then, it wasn't like people were looking for female-owned dispensaries. It was like the dispensaries you saw that related to females, there was that spot called Cannababes where yeah. the women were like, it was like sexy, strippery vibes. It's like bikini brew. Yeah, like exactly, thing. exactly. And like that was the culture. So mm-hmm. I think it took a bit of bravery that is not needed now as much because there's a lot of reinforcing cultural presence right. in 2019. You look on social media, you look in culture, women openly consuming and being proud of it, being normal, Rihanna memes. Mm-hmm. But it really did not feel like that four years ago and there were there was opportunity for women who were early on the scene because all of a sudden it was like shoot we should probably have one female voice on this or we should probably have one female employee here and right um that was sort of another reason to just keep moving because I happened to be a woman who happened to be open about cannabis and and not as many women were at that time. So that helped me get these other opportunities to open a medical dispensary and watch that just crumble (laughs) because that transition it was like if you got in at the end of the medical season (laughs) medical at the end of the medical era Mm -hmm. that was when we had that blossom in Portland it was like we went in 2014 we went from two dispensaries to 400 it felt like something like that it's not it's not even an exaggerated number by too much and uh so we were in at the end of that and Mm. had no chance it was like four other dispensaries opened up the same week we did it was it was completely meaningless um but that was interesting to step away from the workings of the medical industry and get to write more because by 2015 2016 as I am the medical farm I was working for is also folding because these these business owners the leap to go to rec they just weren't there they were not interested in doing that and they didn't have the resources to do so and so as the industry shifted towards rec I also shifted slightly adjacent from the industry and got to really dig into what was happening and writing about it Mm. and that was when stuff started happening more things that weren't just writing about a strain review it was like holy crap these are the laws that are passing these are the lounges that are opening these are the socials that are starting these are the interesting pop-ups that are happening and, and innovative new products and it was like the industry just complexified and and it's only sped up in momentum since then Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. As as people kind of came out of their cannabis closets with the transition to adult use, um, it brought a lot more voices to the yeah. space, a lot more ancillary stories. activities, right? Stories that then you can kind of broadcast, you can give a platform. For. And as those stories increased, so did the publications across the nation's comfort with publishing cannabis mm-hmm. stuff. Everyone was still kind of sketchy in 2015. And Absolutely. I mean, even I've just seen in the last like year and a half, really year and a half, two years, um, like Forbes, Entrepreneur, yeah, 100%. Like, major publications. Rolling Stone even. Exactly. It really wasn't until the last 
year and a half that all of these major publications are like, we have to report on the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And it's not just Maureen Dowd's one-off article in Vanity Fair. It's like right. people have to continuously report on it. It's something happening. It's not like, let's get a pot story for 420 anymore. It's like, we're doing pot month all of April. We're going to need 30 <laughs> stories. We're going to need four features. And um, it's it's just fascinating. So I'm, again, just super lucky because the industry's grown as I have and my network has. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm very symbiotic with the rise of the cannabis industry in Portland and the West Coast in Canada. And for me in the last year, having been somebody that was an early somewhat reporter on the subject uh people when they start googling what the heck what have people said about cannabis now that they're starting to think about it for the first time in places like canada and california looking at the rec industry they find willamette week stories and that makes me so Mm -hmm. proud of of this community and and what we've put out and it makes me so proud to see the work in the portland community have a ripple effect elsewhere too because this is just a place where people deeply care about getting doing it really right Mm -hmm. and (laughs) no matter what risk that is financially yep oh totally (laughs) and the lack of a promise of success people still are just there's a lot of people doing things for the sake of doing them right here and Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it's it's such a pursuit of passion um because Portland has had such a legacy industry. I mean, we've had such a history of black market activity, such a history of then medical activity that's really paved the way for this hub of craft and mission-driven culture of wanting to get it right, um, wanting to get like good information out there, where I haven't seen another industry in the United States pop up yet that truly does it like Portland does it. Not yet. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Our shops don't, they don't look like this everywhere. And no, people don't have competitions like the cult classic. Right. And we have our issues with diversity and equity. But as I look at laws arise in California, I mean, to file a retail application in Pasadena right now, it is a $13,000 non-refundable application fee. Oh, my in Oregon in 2016 you could have gotten a dispensary going with like 10 grand in your pocket and, oh, yeah. a, and a piece of viable and a landlord willing to work with you yep. on a viable yep. property like that accessibility I am proud of mm-hmm. the people that will endure will see the industry is still definitely shaping up but I I think I've been happy reporting on this and staying a part of what's happening because there's all these stories that arise like you talk about we have this legacy of botany and of weed culture tracing back to the 60s and and the sort of emerald triangle world and then now I get to write about stories that are like young women starting their own businesses and doing things that they never would have been able to do in other industries at age 24 or whatever, you know. Right. I think about Andy Bixel and the and the drip suite situation mm-hmm. like here's somebody that that conventionally in a in a business sense probably would have not been able to do that level of artistry and whimsy that she was able yes. to pull off and like really shape how people were branding themselves in the industry and stuff. Yeah, redefining what it means to be in business as well. I mean, when we when we look around and and I see the like young driven women with tattoos, um, like you said, we need to do more more work when it comes to diversity and inclusivity for women of color in this space. But the shift is happening to transform what it what it means and what it looks like to be a businesswoman in the cannabis industry. And I think that that is really cool and empowering. 
So let's talk about women in cannabis a little bit because it is a topic that's talked about a lot like within the, the greater um, contextualization of the industry across the country. And I've seen a ton of media reports about how this is the first time in American history that there is an industry where women and men have true equity, where cannabis does afford, afford gender equity. Um, and I want to ask you first, do you think this is true? You know, it's so funny because this is like I this is my first recorded interview. But any other time I've been asked for quotes for articles in, in other emerging markets in Montreal, I got a call from this wonderful writer just two weeks ago. And these are the questions they're asking, like, mm. like, what does that mean there? Some some places are like, what do you, what is that? What are you talking about? Women in cannabis. And some people are like, "Ooh, tell me. <laughs> um, and and it's it's so it's so dicey now because we it is like feminism as a whole just being a marketing word right now being a mm-hmm. buzzword being something that target is slapping on you know gym tops and right. and being <laughs> right. s- sort of a sal- selling point of of a women focused women founded thing makes it dicier and i there there are there's so much opportunity and that's what's exciting is women's ideas that probably weren't going to get ears in other industries in in years prior to this are getting ears now and mm-hmm. getting getting opportunity getting platforms getting heard out um, because of their value but also because I think because this is a very freeing bold jump because of those social things you know for for mothers that are working in cannabis to to start a cannabis business it's that's a pretty revolutionary move that yep. is something that 10 years ago it's like Aaron Brockovich levels risk mm-hmm. and and the women we we've heard those stories at conferences of women risking literally the the child protection services coming to their house because yep. they had some connection to cannabis advocacy or medical marijuana advocacy um so those are so empowering because we're getting to see faces that we relate to Mm -hmm. do wildly bold exciting things and we resonate with that and we we share these stories um that feel like they're not happening elsewhere or they don't have a, a way to be shared elsewhere in other industries and then on the other end of that no, it's not true because there the, those demographics are not there yet. We like to talk about women in cannabis because I think it's just rare to see so many young artistic business owners making a name for themselves, getting coverage, having headlines, having buzzy, extremely hyped products and companies. That's something outside of retail and conventional cosmetic brands or whatever, you know, dominating social media, having mm-hmm. having a cannabis related presence or brand and yeah I mean the other end is I can't name five female owned growers in Portland but I could name 20 male owned growers in one second one second um right same with dispensaries edible companies in Oregon are really equitable it feels like actually it does it does I can actually name off the top of my head a lot of of female owned edible companies yeah but I will say, yeah, it's gnarly in the in the cultivation realm. Still, mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of equity, and and part of that is is exposure. Like we're coming out of an era where people didn't say their name on articles that quoted them. I when I was first reporting, I was plenty of anonymous strain reviews by growers who were not going to release their information right. because these are 
people, if they've grown longer than five years, they were people who were wary of knocks on their doors and had to worry about tracking people tracking their electricity bills, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's plenty of women that we don't know about that have been extremely influential and, and participate still in our rich part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that cultivate like actually so like proof proof cultivar mm-hmm. i think we all associate it with jeremy plum right brilliant guy changing the game but when you walk through there uh kylie mendonka and meg hausman are two women who are pretty much the engine that keep proof going they're the wow, ones walking no through the the they're the ones that like bring the reports to jeremy each week of their innovation r&d projects and and making the assessments of what strains are going to work and what strains aren't and what babies ended up working in the experimental crosses and what ones didn't and and they're like doing some of truly some of the most interesting research in cannabis right now. Wow. So so there's a couple of women that are huge, but we are not, we don't see a lot of coverage about them. They're, they're more quiet behind the scenes figures. Mm-hmm. They don't have 30,000 followers on Instagram. Right, right. Um, and isn't that how it's, I feel like that's how it's just been, where like women have been the engine that keeps things running. I mean, even I saw a report that where it was like, women are, are the the ones who are making the main buying decisions for the households where they are the ones who are determining the products that the the family buys and therefore they really are the ones with buying power um and i read that and i was like well duh of course of course it makes total sense but now companies are like oh ding we should start marketing to women and this particular report was connecting cannabis to that how um even if the the husband or the the boyfriend is going into the dispensary and picking up the items it is uh their their female counterpart who is kind of determining what is being bought and i thought that that was really interesting and of course true and it's always been true um and and now it's just bringing those women kind of out into the forefront a little Mm -hmm. bit more um and and making sure the equity lies also in executive positions yeah where it's not it's not just the women are the machine social the media engine. managers exactly the but. social media manager <laughs> but they are the ceo they are on the yeah. board they are shareholders actually, exactly the the voice uh, or at least so they're having a voice in the executive decisions yeah of the so i think the the concept of women in in cannabis being this triumphant like we did it thing is not accurate mm. because we don't have that yet we don't right. have equal representation in in executive positions or ownership that's that's for sure we just are probably seeing more women than we've ever seen being talked about like they are now and that's yes. why it feels so jarring <laughs> <laughs> which is also good it, yes, it does it mark is. like progress for me and and the, some of the best ideas going on right now are from the brains of women yes which of course mm-hmm. absolutely it's about time that we start highlighting them but with the shedding of prohibition cannabis prohibition prohibition and the culture that largely informed that which was a masculine stoner culture mm-hmm. there's still going to be some just like releasing of that oh, as it. we mature it's still it's still so I mean, we are in our Portland bubble, even there. Like, Mm -hmm. even though we're talking about problems with equity here, it's tenfold outside of this sort of progressive cannabis community because we have these conversations. We we do kind of audit ourselves pretty regularly on on diversity and and challenge ourselves to be better, challenge our our city to do better for equaling the playing field. But elsewhere, I feel like the ads and the the marketing that goes on would never fly here. Oh yeah. Like the whole ignite 
what's his name oh, thing, the Dan, Dan Bilzerian thing. Yeah. I, know, I don't even want to give him fucking... Laughed at, written about, just skewered if it happened up here. Mm-hmm. If there was a big billboard that was all boobs and weed and whatever, right. you know, it exactly. would not fly. And that yeah, is still flying elsewhere. of women uh, is, is absolutely still a thing in cannabis marketing. Luckily in Portland, it's not. I do want to dive into the <laughs> diversity aspect because Portland is really white. We are a very white city, um, and so our cannabis community and industry is very white, and it is a problem. Um, and and I know that there are a lot of good conversations about how do we include women of color? How do we level the playing field? How do we create equity? And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, specifically uh, from the lens of like media reporting. How can we amplify voices of women of color in this space? I do think it's this is a uh a place where you're exactly right where we're media digging a little deeper and looking for those stories that may not be lying directly on the top of the pile are mm-hmm. going to illuminate what's what's really moving the industry forward it wasn't until i was researching uh for a delivery piece that i ended up realizing that green box that adrian wayman of green box is who passed courier laws with the city and wow. city of portland was super contentious we were gonna ban delivery altogether and he was the one that was in and out of there writing things out figuring it out working out all the little details to make it happen mm. and and he he Technically, it was the first legal recreational delivery service in the United States. Wow! Because of how the laws timed out and everything, so like there's an example of of like yes, we have a very white community, but actually a black guy was who made delivery cannabis exist in the city of Portland, the biggest city in Oregon. Mm. So some of it is just exposure and right. and representation, and I think that's the that's the problem because it goes back to you can't be what you can't see and for women in general having a setback of feeling like they're not allowed to consume regularly or be associated exclusively with weed you know my my family supports me wholeheartedly now and are probably all listening but when I first quit my corporate data entry job to run a dispensary it was a huge risk to all of them Mm -hmm. a terrifying risk that could potentially end my career and the person who ended up offering me that job to run that dispensary was a retired businessman of portland who had made a lot of money done his thing wanted to get involved Mm. and to them it at that point, that idea was a, a good idea, a good investment. And it sort of showed me that, like, mm. you know, for, for this aging businessman to enter cannabis, yeah, sure, that makes sense. But for a young woman to enter cannabis, oh, are you sure, sweetie? Like, it's right. a really big choice. So women of color have that times three because not only are they dealing with social stigmas, they're dealing with the assumption that they were at a higher risk for persecution throughout throughout history up until now and still now really that sort of double layer of people have to remember that it like wasn't cool to admit you had smoked weed last night to your friends because you don't know who you can trust you don't know who's around because a white kid joking about smoking weed so somewhere is very different than a black kid joking about smoking weed somewhere and those those two conversations can go two very different ways so people women that weren't comfortable being open about it women of color had to think twice as much about being open about it and that's its own hill to climb because 
it's going to take representation. It's going to take women seeing women they relate to to feel more comfortable and inspired to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, women of color watched their communities get decimated by the war on drugs. And so, of course, there's going to be some just generational trauma there. And that the fact that this is still going on, that's the thing to, to kind of like peek outside of the Portland bubble, that there are still parts of the country where especially if you are black, you can absolutely get arrested and go to jail for a long time for marijuana possession. Um, and and so it is that much more important to me to engage people of color, women of color in the Portland community where there is more protection, I suppose, because it is a, a legal market um, where they can kind of have a voice and, and have shared equity in uh, in an industry that before it was legalized, truly destroyed their communities. And Portland, it's hard here because then when we are lazy about trying to be a, a hero in in representation, we tokenize the, right. the one black dispensary we're familiar with or the right. one black girl we're familiar with. And that's, that's hard with Portland demographics, period, mm-hmm. to not do that. Um, but it shouldn't be that hard. And I think we all have to be careful about, about filling in the blanks and when people are quick to defend their cannabis company and their success in a new market in comparison to the demise of people that were involved with cannabis prior to now, they're, they're quick to make commitments. They're quick to say, we have diversity initiatives. We're, we're going to be different. We're going to give back to the communities that suffered most. But what you said before about executives, the, the proof is really, it's like you can talk the talk, but until you walk the walk, mm-hmm. you're not really doing anything. Exactly. Until you're actively recruiting and seeking out people of color and you're having a a business that has a format that will allow people to climb through the ranks, that will facilitate growth and development, you you can't say that you're helping just yet. Right. Just because you have a Instagram takeover from one one black person a month, that does not count, Mr. Whoever or who mm-hmm. whomstever. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it, it is like like you said, uh like really the the allyship and and not only being an ally but also being an accomplice in actively recruiting those people of color who are very qualified to enter into these more executive positions and then not like touting them and tokenizing them as like a oh look at our company oh mm-hmm. we're so inclusive because um, that that's a trap that a lot of people put themselves into and it's a word of mouth industry we make so many connections through oh I know somebody that could help you out with that mm-hmm. actually I know th- I have one of those machines why don't you borrow it yep. or my buddies can help can you help give my nephew a couple hours here and there trimming like all those little things we have to think about expanding beyond our horizons to the people we know and trust to people that are qualified and interested in that job like the whole uh, I don't remember the acronym for hiring your family or hiring your own nepotism nepotism yep. yeah <laughs> I mean that that's very bad in cannabis because we're coming out it's like that trust issue again yep. you you're tempted to to hire people you know deeply but we're coming out of that now mm-hmm. we have benefits and minimum wage requirements and and it's much more professional work scene so i think uh yeah business owners need to show that professionalism as well absolutely Absolutely. Um, To pivot a little bit, so you write for Forbes, you write for the amazing Broccoli magazine, as well as Willamette Week. What has been your favorite pot story to tell and why? Oh, I... Can I like pick one per? Yeah, it's, pick one it's, per. Because it's so different. It's so unique. And 
Willamette Week, it's 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 my home. That was my diving board. That's where I, I kind of cut my teeth as a writer, and they, mm. they broke me of my college instincts and helped me find <laughs> a sense of voice. Um, and I... I'd say some of my favorite stuff is now where I, I have a sense for the stories that will work for the Portland. I, I find these Portland eccentric stories. Like I think one of my favorites in the past year, at least, was writing about um, Nomster Nails, Nomi, this this nail artist in Portland, and you can find her at Nomster Nails. But she she's somebody that moved here for college for art school grew up in California and enjoyed weed and loved going to salons, but felt this sort of twofold stigma from being a Korean immigrant who didn't speak perfect Korean because she moved here when uh, she was young, a kid. Mm. And so she grew up in California and had somewhat of an accent, but wasn't living with Koreans. Mm -hmm. So she would go into these salons and be kind of ignored by the Korean women who worked there and then Mm -hmm. also judged for smelling like weed because she wanted to go get high before she got a foot massage and enjoy it. We all want to be high for our salon (laughs) appointments. Total common sense. (laughs) So she sort of was like, a, I'm sick of feeling uncomfortable just enjoying this and also realizing she could make more money faster and sooner doing nail work than following through with her graphic design. Mm. She she made the greatest quote that was like, uh, people need their nails done every week. People need graphic design every few months. True. And I was like, That's that true. is not... <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, and she's found nothing but clients, clients, clients. Everyone has a blast. She comes That's over. Awesome. People come to her. I met her at an event that she was doing, and I think she's kind of branching out and doing more pop-ups with different retailers. But like that just was everything I love about these little corners of the industry like she's she's not going to get a headline in marijuana business industry uh magazines she's probably not going to be called for conferences on cannabis cultivation and the industry booming but like there's somebody that is totally her own story no one's doing that uh and it just takes these kind of like you know what i'm gonna do that no i don't I know I don't see anyone else like that. I can do it. Mm. I, I I love that attitude so much of of just trusting. I'm gonna fill this gap. I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna fill this need. Yes, and, and that's, be me. Exactly. That's yeah. that's such the spirit of so many women in this space of just like, Ugh. well, nobody else is doing it. Yeah. So I'm yeah. gonna do it. Exactly. Um, for broccoli, I I had the pleasure of writing about Nina Parks for the most recent uh, issue and she is who founded Supernova Women in California and Mm. they're doing really cool things to empower women in the industry, women who are interested in the industry, just people in general of color. She has this story that her and her brother, total Bay Area kids, they go to New York for a, um, no excuse me, they go to Amsterdam, do the thing, love it. They're like, it's medical. We should do something like this in California. Let's make this happen. Uh, they go home, and on one trip to New York, her brother gets caught with weed. Boom, jail. Oh my Boom. god! Like hard time in prison. <gasps> oh my god! And she's in California, like starting a medical delivery service, and wow. she's just like, what? What's going on here? Why? Why did this happen? And and she. She talked about the impact of seeing her white friends put on suits to go get their licenses and mm-hmm. thinking of her brother in a, an orange jumpsuit oh. for doing for doing the same thing, for yep. having cannabis. Yep. Um, so, again, a, a, a really a heavy story, but in the end, uh, empowering story because she, after all that, her and her brother are on this mission to provide a stellar medical service in the Bay Area, but also she basically started all efforts for 
the local in Oakland area to have equity in the industry to start challenging people to put together expungement clinics to train people on legislative updates and set up panels to keep people updated. As you know, it was like everyone was so starved for information when yes. recreational and when the rec laws passed. Like it was it was like Amy Margolis setting up those law sessions yep. kind of for herself and for her clients. But if she hadn't done that and set up an open invite for those OCA meetings, people would have been really panicked. Yep. She she facilitated a lot of questions and that was so vital at that time where laws are being dropped down every six weeks that totally changed the way people had to run their businesses. So uh, she's pivotal in, in spreading that information and holding Californian cities accountable for the commitments they've made to communities of color. Mm, that is awesome. Yeah, that look her up, Supernova awesome. Women. Awesome. Um, so you also attend and speak at cannabis conferences regularly. Have you ever experienced gender bias while there? Because I know that from my experience in cannabis conferences now, they are way different than they were a couple years ago. I mean, men in suits, the khakis, the blue jackets, the whole nine yards, a lot more high dollar amount um, investment banker types. And I um, and yeah, so I wanted to know if you've ever had an experience like that. And if so, how did how do you respond? That's so true. Yeah. When the industries were when the when the events were like that with the plaid and the knapsack bags filled with glass jar samples, yep. <laughs> I was not speaker level notoriety. And and now that I've gotten some attention for having a perspective for people in the industry, like uh, locally, it's it's very different than elsewhere. Again, the Portland community is different if if my colleagues and, and women my age are planning the event it's a very different experience than mm -hmm. going to Montreal and speaking at a huge business conference that I had no idea how much money was going to go into they had like I, I went to C2 in Montreal which was my real experience being on a panel of of people with money talking about cannabis for the first time not yeah. not people of cannabis but people who were into it and they had bmws driving everyone from the airport to the event and to our airbnbs and it was like wow. dripping in money but it wasn't wow. a cannabis event it, it was like a bigger ceo vacation weird retreat thing <laughs> but on that panel it was it was radical actually because i am naive i'm used to this community where people are um not so quick to judge a five foot something little Asian young looking half Japanese woman <laughs> in the corner they're probably like she might be a reporter I better be careful what I'm saying uh when I was in Montreal I I could have been a, a chair I was wow. there was so I I mean I was on a panel with the head of um Tokyo Smoke mm. um the most recent like head of production for Canopy. Oh, so yeah, my God, it was like two of the <laughs> biggest dogs in Canada, cannabis, me, and I was invited to suggest someone from the organ industry, and I I suggested Beth Schechter of the Open Cannabis oh, Project. Yes, so having an, an ally and a familiar face on the panel was huge. But um, they pretty, I was a moderator. And so I also had to like rein in the boyish jokes. I had to like, mm. hey, can we, uh, can we focus guys on wow. this panel? Cause your jokes about like whether joints are done yet are very funny, but like, we'd like to discuss cannabis economy. Wow. So it is sort of, it was like, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did feel um, so what I did was in my reaction at the time, I was probably a little too spicy, but it was my first time moderating. But I just wanted to remind them that just because they have far bigger Bloomberg profiles than I'll ever have Mm -hmm. did not mean they knew anything about cannabis. And, And the first thing I said was, well, really, Beth stuck it to him. But it was like, you know, for people who aren't actively discussing how they're actively helping the people that are still serving time and suffering from records with cannabis. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're really welcome to this new party just yet. And and it was so perfect. Mm. And and the crowd responded. This is a Canadian crowd that still was in like, ooh, ah, back in May. Um, and they, they, they backtracked so hard. They got so uncomfortable. They were, oh my God, the guy talked for like five minutes about how like, well, I, I, I'm a social advocate. I, I fight for cannabis. And it was, it was really quite amusing to see how uncomfortable these two extremely powerful, wealthy, significant people were just by two women that they will never think of again, merely posing to them that they're, they're not exactly heroes of the cannabis industry just right. yet like it was such a blast to their ego mm-hmm. and that's just hilarious to me because women said goodbye to their ego the minute they said i'm going to be working in cannabis right, <laughs> right. um and so, you watch how fragile the male ego gets so i'd say that's you're like, the biggest mm, you don't thing, know yeah. everything that's yeah. all you you know a lot i'm sure about business and finance but you don't know everything and that right there just makes that's them, it oh uh, that's probably yeah the only discomfort i've had was truly just watching that like just barely poking and seeing the fragility just explode so it's whatever that's hilarious you guys embarrass yourselves you just stand there (laughs) sit up straight feel good in your blazer uh i had i had a hand-me-down one on that had legit uh shoulder pads from the 80s so i was i had my armor on yeah i was ready i was just i just sat back and enjoyed it yes oh that's (laughs) that's awesome i i love that it's such a it's such a weird place for me still i feel like i'm learning to like just stick up for myself. I feel like as women, we're so conditioned to just kind of like bow down to that um, male prowess, yeah, I guess, yeah, performative yeah. prowess. Yes, exactly. Um, whereas, no, they they need to be called out. Yeah, it, it's time. And if it's actually, sometimes time. if you let them just keep talking, they'll embarrass them. They'll right. they'll resolve it themselves. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one last question, which is a question that we ask at the end of every episode of This Is Cannabis. How do you define quality cannabis? Ooh, so I love weed. I mm. I probably love. I I was a lover before I started writing. I it's quality cannabis to me. It burns smooth. It makes me feel light, not weighed down. Um, it's from a farm that I know and trust. Um, should I give specifics as to what type of? Yeah, sure. Shout it out if you. Want. I don't know. I I like to know that they use nutrients that are natural and, yep. and I don't want any pesticides. I don't want any weirdness, no salts. Just tell me it was grown in the ground by people who know what they're doing and care about each strains, varietals and different needs. So yeah, I want to know it's grown with love for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, so important to me. I And I'm a total flower child. Yes. That's why I care deeply because it's yes. all about the flower, how it burns, how it goes down, how it comes out. I just don't get the same 
from from vaping or dabbing. I like the flower. Yes, the beautiful female flower. That is the reason why. I mean, this whole industry exists. Let's come and back to that. I like. I I'm right there with you. She has to be grown with love. Like there is something in the energy where, especially like planted in the ground there are human hands on her there is love there is touch there is maybe music if if a grower wants to decide to play music just that extra like care and attention and true like again that mission driven thing which portland and the oregon industry has and that to me is so much better than just kind of like mass produced I know flower. I know keep the Portland weed spirit alive exactly <sighs> Portland craft cannabis spirit alive Lauren thank you so so much for coming on today as part of Amplify Women I could not have thought or wished for hoped for a better guest so thank, thank you, you so much this has been so fun yay you have been listening to a special women in cannabis episode of this is cannabis as part of amplify women on x-ray fm a celebration of international women's day radio is yours